she was like the director or something on the psychic unit and she said the reason why you're here is because your brain is sick your brain is an organ just like your heart if you don't take care of your heart you probably have to go to a cardiologist and you don't take care of your brain and it gets really bad you come here she said the things that you did up until this point they they serve this purpose but they they no longer work Friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. This podcast is a spinoff of my blog, BrittanyAMoses.com, where I talk about the intersection of faith and mental health and how that applies to our everyday lives. You're listening to episode 10. On today's episode, I got to sit and have a conversation with my amazing friend, Takia Blackman. Takia is a suicide survivor with a powerful testimony of recovery and redemption alongside faith and has been using her voice to advocate for mental health. She's also the creator and host of the Fireflies podcast, which is dedicated to bringing light into the darkness, much like Fireflies. As you'll soon hear, her story is truly a testament to living beyond a diagnosis, the possibilities of recovery, and the ability to thrive despite a long-standing battle with mental illness. Whether you're someone faced with a diagnosis or you're wanting to better understand those around you who may be facing a mental crisis, you'll want to listen to this whole conversation. Now, I do want to give a disclaimer and warning that there is content surrounding suicidality that might be sensitive to some, so please listen at your discretion. However, I believe this will be a resource that is far more powerful. Right now, we just entered the month of September, which is actually World Suicide Prevention Month. And while I totally didn't plan for this, I couldn't think of a better time to share this conversation with you all. So let's dive into today's show. Guess who I have sitting flesh and blood right in front of me right now. I have Miss Takia Blackman with me. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I'm super excited to like be yeah. here, meet you in person. Like, right. It's always good when you can like connect with people that you're connected with on social media and mm-hmm. you can like meet them in right. person. Because we originally connected online. Mm-hmm. You reached out to me, I think, via Instagram mm-hmm. and asked me to be part of your podcast. Mm-hmm. And so we talked on your podcast last year. It's mm-hmm. crazy that it's right. been a whole year about faith and mental mm-hmm. health. And now I've got you on my podcast. Yes. All right. Well, why don't you, I know a little bit about your story. Um, it's amazing how much that, how much you've overcome and the journey that you've been on and just everything that you're doing today. So before we dive into that, why don't you tell everyone else a little bit about yourself? Yeah. I mean, I, when people ask me that question, I'm always like, what do I say? <laughs> about myself um because there's like so many things that I could say but I think the biggest thing is that I am a person who I'm resilient Mm -hmm. I have persevered through a lot by God's grace and my journey of you know surviving a suicide attempt has opened more doors than I can ever imagine of by being so vocal and transparent about my struggles, it has definitely been a part of my recovery and my healing. And 
because of the things that I've gone through and the things that I've, of course, that I've experienced, for some reason, I don't know why I came up with this idea that I wanted to start advocating for mental health, I guess because for so long I felt embarrassed, I was ashamed, I didn't really want to tell anyone what was going on, but the minute I started to own that nothing is my fault, this happened for me, not to me, and that it does not have to be, a, like having a diagnosis doesn't have to be a death sentence, and also that I can live a thriving life with a mental health diagnosis. And so that is like the biggest thing I think about me. Um, I'm the oldest of seven children. I'm from wow. New Jersey. And yeah. Wow. Amazing. And I, I believe that so there are so many people who will relate to what you're going through. Um, I think I was, as I was telling you on this podcast, I've had just a lot of clinicians and professionals and really great people come on and share about the different aspects of mental health and what's mm-hmm. involved. But I think what's so special about this episode is that um, we get to hear from someone who has been on the other side and who has made it through mm-hmm. and that, I mean, your story is just helping so many people and that it is possible to live a functioning and thriving life through it all through a diagnosis um and it all be turned around and used for the good of others and Mm -hmm. i think that's so powerful kind of like how they say you know your ministry comes from your deepest Mm -hmm. trials your deepest struggles and your evidence of that and i think that gives a lot of people hope as well and so i wanted to ask you with all of that in Mm -hmm. mind if you would tell us about your story, including up to the point of receiving a diagnosis, what led you to seek professional help, how you processed the mm-hmm. diagnosis, and how it changed your life, and this whole journey, how it's led to where you are today. I'm like, Ooh, I know, that's a lot I'm of like, questions. That's a lot. Just like, tell us your story. <laughs> I'm like, let me just break it down a little bit. So, yeah, um, I think going back, so funny, like, oh, I'm in therapy. Going back to my childhood, right? Yeah. So... I experienced or witnessed a lot. So I grew up in um, poverty and most people would call like the, it was like uh, public housing. And so there was a lot of like um, drug dealers. Um, There was a lot of people who were struggled with um, drug addiction. There were people, of course, so many people walking around undiagnosed, not really receiving the help. And I remember as a child, like, seeing crack pipes in the hallway of my building. My father not only sold drugs, but eventually he actually struggled with addiction to those substances. And I remember as early as, I don't know, maybe five or six, like, going to see my father in prison, like, through a glass wall. And for some reason, that really that picture or that image like really stays in my mind because I remember as a child asking my mom like because my mom would say my father was in college <laughs> it's like oh, wow and not tell me she's like oh he's away in college or he or he's away at work like just, just a anything little white lie right yeah <laughs> a little <laughs> okay so 
Um, and so I remember at one point I started to put the clues together because I was like, well, mommy, how come you come home from work? But daddy never comes home from work. It's like, is daddy in jail? And she's like, yeah. So that's when I started to realize, okay, there's a little bit more, um, to what's, what I'm, what's being told to me. And then when my parents separated, I, my mom started dating who I refer to as my siblings' dads. We will not say stepdad. I believe that title should be earned, not just because, you know, you're with my mom. Um, he was very abusive to my mom. And I remember as early as 11 seeing my mom be like verbally and physically abused and like calling the police and feeling really hopeless and being very on edge. Like I, I didn't even realize that having like, uncontrollable like worry was a, a thing I literally thought everybody walked around like that I thought it was so normal for me so I remember uh being in eighth grade and one of my friends was like Takia you worry about everything why do you worry so much and I'm like like what are you talking about like I just didn't I didn't know what she was talking about and so like looking back on that time just I remember my mom has always did her best to um, push education. And she's like, I don't want you to become a teenage mom like me. My mom had me at 18. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I don't you know, want that for you. I want a better life for you. But at the same time, when you think about it, there was so much going on in the community, like people who were so dependent upon like government assistance, like that's all they knew. It's like just generations of poverty. And my mom was like, always told me like, it's okay if you need it for the time being, but not to rely on it. And that's when I started realizing um, as a child, when we moved out of the, um, like the public housing and we moved to a suburban area, that's when some reason it started to click that my childhood was slightly different because when we moved, I started seeing people like with both of their parents, people, their families had college degrees. They all uh, like owned their own homes. Um, it just seemed very different. And I remember always feeling a little bit ashamed, like about where I grew up because I was like, well, how come is it that like, I remember I lost friends to like gun violence and gang activity as early as like 13 or 14. And so I would say, like, I would always ask myself, like, why is it that I have to go through these things? And I remember when I started seeing my mom get abused, um, that was around the time I started struggling with suicidal thoughts. And I was maybe like 11 or 12. I didn't know it was called suicide. I just knew that I thought about ways of ending my life. And I often just felt like I wanted to die. But I didn't know. I couldn't put a name to it. Um, but what really helped me um, as a child is that even with all of that, I was still surrounded by like a village of people who believed in me and saw something in me. So I was involved in pageants. I, oh, wow. Yes, I won titles. Okay. I was in she is really cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so I did a lot, like played an instrument, fashion shows, dance, and that was like my outlet, like yeah. education, yeah. extracurricular activities that really helped to shape and mold me and show that there um there's something else that can be better like you don't have to be um 
you don't have to perpetuate or like continue the cycle of poverty. Right. You don't have to um, think that this is all that you'll ever have. Um, and so when I when I think about growing up, like yesterday, someone was telling me like you're tough as nails, right? And I was like, and I never saw. I was like, I never really saw myself as tough, but. I was like, okay. And she's like, when you think about all the things that you've gone through. Mm -hmm. And I remember I eventually started, like, once I went to, like, college, I always remained involved in a lot. But the flip side to that, while that was a great outlet, it forced me to ignore right. and suppress right. all the things that was going on. So people could look at me and say, like, oh, she's working at Black Girls Rock, or oh, she's doing the Soul Train Awards, or she's doing this, she's doing that. So it looks like, oh, wow, she's following her dream, yeah, which is she's great. she's high-functioning. Right. She must be fine. She must be fine. Yeah. And so eventually, um, I remember one day, like, I could not stop the suicidal thoughts. Like, I mm. thought about ending my life for eight months straight. Oh, my gosh, I was yeah. afraid to be by myself. And I was so tired of the internal battle that I said, I just can't do this no more. I'm just going to give in. I was like, these thoughts have been really following me and haunting me since yeah. I was a child. Yeah. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so I remember texting a friend and I told her, I said, um, the text message said something along the lines like, it would be better if I, w if I wasn't here or I wish I was dead or something like that. Now, at the time, I didn't know what she did with that, but I know like some uh, maybe like an hour later or less, the police showed up. And by that time, I didn't have like anything to eat or drink in like three or four days. So I was extremely weak. I was dehydrated. Mm. And I remember them asking me like, you know, they opened the window because I didn't open the door. I was really weak. So I really had a hard time like walking and things like that. And they're like, well, can you at least try to make your way to the door? Right. And so when I did, they were like, are you going, you know, did you try to hurt yourself or wh what's going on? We're doing a wellness check. We got a phone call. Right. And I just said to them, I took a whole bunch of pills and wine, and mm. basically right now I'm waiting to die. Like, I was waiting for it to happen. Right. And they just so happened to show up in that time while I was waiting to pass away. And they were like, you're a threat to yourself. We have to get you to the hospital. And once I got to the hospital, um, I was evaluated by the psychiatrist. I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know the month. And they were like, you know, we're going to either involuntarily check you in or you can check yourself in. But either way, you're not leaving because you are not um, you're not healthy right now. And so I didn't really know what I was checking myself into. But I was like, I know that I need to leave. I, I need to get here. But even before that, I remember the police, they told me they said we can call the paramedics or we can handcuff you, whichever, whichever one. But you, you have to leave out of here. And so I told them, okay, you can call the paramedics. And it was like my worst nightmare came true because the only visuals or image that I had of like the psychiatric unit as a child was like the movie Good Burger. That's like the only thing I could think of, you know, with Keenan and Kale. Yes. So like I thought like people were going to be wrapped in straight jackets. Right. They'd be walking around looking like zombies. Like I just had this image of what I thought it would be. And even though, while yes, it was very scary, mm -hmm. and I personally thought I didn't belong there because I thought I was too educated. I was like, I have a degree from Howard University. I have my master's from Georgetown University. Like, people like me, basically, in my head, I'm like, I'm too educated. I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. And 
through that experience, it really has, it was, I would say, life-altering and really was eye-opening that I was actually really sick and I really did need to be there. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Your story touches on so many intersectionalities and, Mm -hmm. and so many factors. Like, one, just the whole poverty experience in the mental health challenges and culturally that are developed there, um, as well as, man, the hospitalization and the fact that your friend called as immediately that she even kind of knew what to do and to immediately get you help and being high-functioning where you were still able to function and go about life, but you were having these intrusive thoughts. And my first question was, when you were feeling or having suicidal ideation and wanting to end things, was it because it was so distressing and you were you were wanting to end the distress and it felt like this is the only solution for this? Um, or was it that you wanted to pass away because your life felt hopeless? Or was it like, you know what, this is so distressing, it created a hopelessness that made you feel like, I don't want to feel this way anymore, and I feel like this is the only way. Well, you know what? Even I forgot to mention that while, yes, I was functioning at one point, eventually I got to the point where I was not. So I was not working. Right. I didn't have an income. Um, Like, tapped out of the little savings that I did have. Um, I was not eating. I was not taking care of my hygiene. I was in bed for days at a time. Like, I just was existing, not living. Right. Um, And I think in terms of like attempting, so that was actually not the first attempt. The first attempt I had, I was 14, but like it was, it felt very um, like, I don't know what was happening, but it seemed like I was just doing something, but not really sure what I was doing. It's like, I just put a whole bunch of pills in my mouth, but like I heard someone coming down the steps. So I like spit them out and I was just, Mm. I was going to take them, but I really wasn't sure. It seemed very, um, it was kind of like impulsive. That's kind of right. what, it, what it felt, what it seemed like at that time. And then the most recent one in my early 20s, I would say that it was definitely the emotional and mental distress. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Because by this time, I was not working. I was, and now since I didn't, I was in the bed for days, now it's like I had so much idle time. So now they seem to be like right. more, like it was just louder. Right. And so I was like, I am so tired of this internal battle. Like with myself, I I can't do this. Like I'm not, I didn't feel stronger than the thoughts. And it was so hard, like fighting with myself to be like, you're having these thoughts to end it. But then you're like, no, I can't. And it was just draining. And eventually I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I did, I did feel hopeless. And I was like, life is always going to be like this. It's never going to get better. So I should just give in. Something that I've been saying is, you know, when people are feeling suicidal, it's not necessarily that they want to die, but they're feeling so much distress um, that's unbearable that they feel like it's the only solution. Am I correct in saying Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So now you're, you know, you're going through therapy you know, and you're, you've got these coping skills. Looking back, if you had the coping skills now at that point in time, do you believe that you would have 
made it through better or had more hope because I feel like when we're stuck in depression or someone's stuck in depression feeling um, suicidal ideation and things like that, that there is no way out when really they're just at a period in time where maybe they're lacking the coping skills or don't really know how to or have the tools to move through that and that is possibly what's really preventing from moving forward with their life and getting to the other side which is possible Mm -hmm. with the right tools having gone through you know therapy and and things like that would you agree and how would you expound on that yeah I would say if so I started therapy well the first time I started therapy I was an undergrad and I just went because I was dealing with grief I was having a lot of deaths like back to back in a short time period now, yeah, I was definitely dealing with depression, but I didn't know what like I didn't know what the name was. Honestly, I thought depression was a synonym for sadness, which actually it's not. But I, I did. I, I thought I was like, oh, just kind of. But and so I just said, oh, I was dealing with grief. And I never actually opened up to the therapist, and I started doing going to like a group for a, a grief group. And then um, eventually, I found the therapist that I have now, where I've been with her for four years, and. If I would have had the coping skills that I had now, I'm pretty sure I would have not attempted. Right. Uh, Because even when I did attempt, I started seeing her, but it was maybe only like six months in. And I was starting to feel like this is not even working. So why am I coming back? So I eventually just stopped coming. I just stopped going. I was Mm -hmm. like, this is not working. Like, like this is making me feel worse. I'm talking about it and I'm actually feeling worse. I'm talking, I'm leaving here and my head is hurting. I'm like, this, I don't, I don't want to be, I'm like, this is too much. So I just stopped going, but now I'm just looking and I see my progress of like where I was when I first started going to therapy in 2015 to where I am now. I'm like a completely new person, different. Like the way I look at the world, the education that I have, um, not academically, but I mean more so like on myself as far as like being self-aware right? and identifying what coping skills I need to have in place that are healthy. Because before, I remember at the the uh, one of the ladies at the hospital, she told me, she said, she was like the director or something on the psych unit, and she said, the reason why you're here is because your brain is sick. Your brain is an organ just like your heart. Mm-hmm. If you don't take care of your heart, you probably have to go to a cardiologist. When you don't take care of your brain and it gets really bad, you come here. Right. She said the things that you did up until this point, they they serve this purpose, but they they no longer work. Right. So now you're going to have to create new coping skills to help you deal with the stressors and to help you manage your mental health. And for some reason, those words really stuck with me. I like never forgot them. And that's when I started realizing like, wow. Imagine if I would have had the resources and the peer support groups and was involved in like the different mental health organizations in the community and not feeling like left alone. Like I felt really lonely. Like, yeah, I had a huge support system. There's so many people who believed in me, who who encouraged me, but they, I don't feel like they actually got it. Like, I don't really feel like they was educated on it. So once I started like being really committed to my treatment and working on myself and then had the strength and the courage to educate other people, it became a little bit easier for me. Right. And 
I, I think that's great that you mentioned that because you did have the support system but and you had the friends but at the end of the day you are the most responsible for your healing mm-hmm. like no one is more responsible for your healing than you and it is possible to heal but because we're going to live with our thoughts mm-hmm. at the end of the day when we go home and we mm-hmm. leave our friends and our church or whatever it might be we are left alone with our thoughts mm-hmm. and if we don't have a healthy way to process and cope with that then it's going to remain tormenting even mm-hmm. though you have these things in place so it's good to get those skills like you said um and another thing you mentioned that i wanted to touch on is that in therapy it was kind of worse before it got better and i think that people think that going to therapy is going to mm-hmm. be like a magic pill it's going to be this automatic quick process i'm going to go in they're going to tell me what i need to think and what i need to do and boom i'm going to be better but really um it is a process that you have to stick with because you have to unbecome mm-hmm. before you start becoming. You have to unlearn. You have to unpack and get rid of those roots and those strongholds before you develop mm-hmm. these new thought patterns. Sometimes you have to see where it's wrong. So sticking through therapy. Yeah, that's a big thing. I, it's so interesting you brought that up because I was talking to someone yesterday and I was telling them that I didn't even realize that um, my therapist had said like two weeks ago, she's like, Takia, do you realize that um, it's mo- it's very moderate? She's like, but your depression is, you know, creeping back. And I, and I didn't realize it. I said, no, I'm just grieving. I just lost my cousin, so it's natural to be sad. Um, and so she, so then I told her, I said, I, um, I was like, honestly, I don't, remember what it was like for a moderate uh, side of depression I only remember the most severe when I was not like functioning and when like I was feeling really numb and not eating not taking care of my hygiene like I remember the like the low of the low the moderate stuff it's like it was so far removed because I was experiencing depression since a child that that was over 10 years before I even got help and I remember telling my friend that she said, well, what did your therapist tell you to do? And I said, well, honestly, I don't know if you know this. And I, I think she is expecting for her therapist to give her the answers. And I said, your therapist, I said, therapist, they don't tell you what to do. Right. I said, they help guide you for you to figure out what you should do, but they will not come out. And if they do, then I don't know. That's another conversation. But I'm like, they're not going to tell you what you should do, because in the end, only you're the expert. They will ask the right questions. Right. Um, you know, kind of, you know, whole motivational interviewing. They'll kind of do that to, you know, get you to analyze and pull things out to help make those connections and to figure right. out where those things are coming from. But I'm like, no, it's up to me to decide what works best for me. I cannot rely on someone else to do that. I said, that's why now for me, self-care is so much, it's so important because I just got weaned off of my medication about a month ago. Wow. After being on it for four years. That's huge. Can I just pause? Yes, and you can. That's huge. Because you've been implementing a lot of lifestyle changes as well yes. in your diet and with fitness and stuff. And that makes a huge difference. So, I mean, not every, not, not that's not going to be the case for everyone. And right. not one experience is better than the other. Right. But I did want to just pause and like say that that is it that's huge that's yeah it, it's always been my goal now granted if i need it to go back on it again there's no shame I'll right do that. there's no shame um but i remember 
<clears throat> my therapist telling me, she's like, well, you know, you're going to have to decide what you want to do. And I was like, I really don't want to go back on it. I was like, I really want to, it's been a month. I really want to see how I can learn how to, you know, actually implement these coping skills. Now that's not to say, I was like, I don't want to be relying on it. She's like, well, Takiya, technically you're not relying on it. She was like, because the medication does not change your thought process. Exactly. She's like the medication, it helps, you know, you know, may help with the lack of motivation. It may help with, you know, giving you to uh, the energy to be able to do certain things. She's like, but it's not going to, of course, the medication doesn't do the work for you. Like you have to do your work. Right. So that's when I said, you know, I'm going to continue to implement my coping skills um, and I'm going to continue to make sure that I have um, some structure and um, because that that works for me. Right. You know, so I can't. I, I know some people, they maybe like, go with the flow, but, like, when I get up in the morning, I have to have some form of routine. I have to have something. Of course, life happens, and you have to be flexible. But for the most part, like, I know how my mornings are going to be with me working out, with me um, having some prayer time and some meditation time. And then um, those, like, first two and a half to three hours are just for me before I even interact with the rest of the world. And I think so many times... We just get up and go on about our day, and we are literally, from the time we get up, we're getting up and we're giving to other people. We never had time to stop to to be like, how am I feeling? Or what do I need to do like to refill my cup and make sure I'm okay? And I think for me, that was like to my demise because that was something I learned from my mom, like working herself to the bone and just doing all these things. And then I'm like, I can't live my life like that. I have to take time to pull away because your body is similar to a car. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't, you know, take care maintenance for the car, you Mm -hmm. don't get your oil changed, tune up, your tires rotated. If you don't do those things, eventually your car is going to give out. Right. So if you're not taking care of your body, eventually it'll give out. And, And it is hard to gauge. Like you're saying when you're in it, it's hard to gauge how how your mental health is doing if it's getting worse or better sometimes because you're just going through life unless you're doing that checking in Mm -hmm. and so having that accountability whether it is your therapist or your friend or a family member someone someone who's trusted who knows your tendencies Mm -hmm. it's kind of like oh you're you're kind of going in this way Mm -hmm. it's nice to have that that Mm -hmm. system in place as well that accountability um and i actually i wanted to touch on two things um that you spoke on now I'm like I have questions but that I had prepared and now I'm like you're bringing up some other things for me that I I think are so important um one your friend called your friend was the one who called when you texted her and told her that you were feeling suicidal Mm -hmm. and you didn't know like what the consequences of that were going to be but it led to police being at your doorstep Mm -hmm. that's scary um and I think that but ultimately she saved would you say she saved your life absolutely i would say well i would say that god used her absolutely at that time Mm -hmm. right and so we have some people i just had a conversation with um with a youth pastor the other day and he was talking about how you know when someone expresses that and maybe taking them to the hospital the concern was that you would lose the trust of that person for quote unquote turning them in to the Mm -hmm. hospital Mm -hmm. and I was kind of saying well obviously you want to have their trust but you really won't have any trust to build if they're gone so the priority is to take care of 
the emergency of what's going mm-hmm. on. And so it sounds like you don't regret the fact that your friend called and even though you ended up having to go through this process that you at first resisted, which is being hospitalized and having to be checked in, mm-hmm. but would you say that it was ultimately the best thing she could have done? Yeah, and honestly, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know it was her until after uh, maybe like a week later. But I honestly, I was upset at first. I was very mad. Like I was humiliated right and naturally and so i'm like what because i didn't when i kept telling everyone like don't call this this all stuff like this is why i'm not telling anyone what's going on because you're gonna call and you're gonna lock me in this place and so i was scared and things like that and so but over time i began to realize that it was what i needed if she did not call i may not even be here having this conversation right so Looking back, um, no, there are not any regrets or any resentment because it was the very thing that helped to save my life. I think that's so powerful Um, because I think there also will be people who are listening that might find themselves or have been in an intense situation where someone has expressed that they're suicidal um, and on the verge and it's like, you know, get that person to some care Mm -hmm. as, as quick as you can if it's like they have a plan they have a means and they have a time those are the three mm-hmm. things you know take it very seriously mm-hmm. you know regardless of maybe how they might feel about it in the moment the end result is that their life mm-hmm. matters yeah so i'm glad that you spoke on that there is something else that i have to touch on while you're here specifically mm-hmm. because we're both women of color mm-hmm. so i feel like we need to have this conversation um you were talking about your background and how you know you just you just didn't talk about these things each subculture has its set of stigmas right and i know that man i've heard situations where it's like what i have anxiety what do you worry for why are you you have all these things be grateful you have a house you have a roof you know and then there's that's kind of, there's that like survival mentality but also a lot of times i don't know i've experienced we just, we just don't talk about that stuff mm-hmm. and not just in black communities, but I've had conversations with my Latino friends. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not p- really part of the culture, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so just and then we have the inter- intersectionality of, of church and the faith mm-hmm. thing where it's like, you know, it can be perceived whether it's not it might not even be said, but it can kind of be perceived as a failure in faith or character or mm-hmm. not believing in God enough. So. You put, you have church, but then you put black church together and you have this whole other set of stigmas. Not all, Mm -hmm. but I've seen it. It does exist. Um, And so just talking a little bit to that, because it's something we've both experienced and we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, like, yeah, like you said, mental health wasn't really talked about. I remember my first kind of, entry or um into what mental health might look like was when my mom um had custody of my cousin my cousin used to live with us for a long time and she used to always take her to see this lady and my cousin would leave and go in a room and come out with artwork and i used to figure out why can't i go in there i was sitting in the waiting room and then like my cousin would come out and my mom would go in or they would go in together and i'm like 
popular? Like, what what's going on? And then when I got older, I realized, oh, she was in therapy. Mm. But I think it may have been, like, court-mandated or something that she needed to probably see, like, a therapist or behavior specialist because both of her parents were, like, incarcerated and on drugs. So my mom was, like, the primary caregiver and guardian for her. So that was, like, the first time. But it didn't click until years later that that's what it was. And I remember just... No one really said it to me, but, like, I overheard things like therapy is for crazy people or, like, uh, black people don't kill themselves. Only white people do that. Or, like, even when I was struggling, you know, in the deepest, you know, most, like, terrible episode of depression, I remember, like, some of my church family members telling me to, like, um, to, you know, speak in tongues uh, for 20 minutes a day and, like, your depression will go away. Or, like, don't take that medication. It's going to make you worse. Or, like you don't have enough faith or like um, are you praying hard enough or just things like that and then it started to make it feel like it's a character flaw right, like something's wrong with when you. it's like yeah. when you think about just my upbringing and the things that I was exposed to I already was like predisposed to all to all of that mm-hmm. you know when you think about the connection like you said in the intersection between like you know mental illness and poverty right. and then you want to add being a person of color because we come from a long lineage of trauma. So I feel like it's like, it's really when you think about generations of generational trauma. And so. And not, and not dealing with that trauma. Right. Or just surviving, just surviving. And even for so long for our community, we didn't have the luxury of healing. We just needed to survive. We just needed to make sure our family, our family had a roof over their head that, they got meals every day. They had clothes on their back. Like, they were just trying to survive with the basic necessities. But now I think about now we do have the luxury to be able to heal. Right. We do have the resources that are available. There are, while, yes, there's a shortage, but there are a lot more people of color um, who are clinicians now. Mm-hmm. And I didn't personally feel comfortable seeing anyone except a black woman. And... That was my preference. Now, that doesn't mean that that's every that's this person for every person who may be black or of color that they want to see a, a person of color. But for me, that was something that was really important. And so yeah. I think about how I had to realize that mental illness, no matter what the diagnosis is, it is not a character flaw. It is not the person's fault. You wouldn't say that a person who got cancer is their fault. Most likely right. you wouldn't. Even if they smoke cigarettes, you may not even say that it's their fault. You may just be like, oh, you know, it kind of just happened or if someone has a heart attack or a stroke. I feel like we we give a certain level of, like, compassion and grace for, like, physical illnesses and things that we can actually see or, like, actually that are visible. And we can, like, put, uh, you know, we can, like, oh, I can put my finger on that. I can see how mm-hmm. um, this person has HIV or AIDS and they're deteriorating. But since I can't see what's going on in the brain, but the thing about that is like the brain controls every part of your body. So if that's not together, then it's naturally it's going to have a ripple effect on everything. And so I think now the church, um, specifically the black church, I feel like we're, we are coming around and we're much more open. I'm seeing that too. And I feel like it's great because it's needed. Um, But of course we have some ways to go, but I do see that the needle is starting to move. Yeah. You were basically talking earlier about, and you just kind of spoke on this again, about childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And 
really how childhood trauma, it really does rewire you, Mm -hmm. especially if you've been in a very hostile and volatile environment, you know, your, your body is being, it's shaping itself. In development. In development. Because mm -hmm. your brain is developing all the way up until age 25. Mm -hmm. So it's still in the the development process. Mm -hmm. Same with your body, your hormones, all of that. And so if you're constantly conditioned in an environment where you have to be on guard or you have to look out for your safety, eventually your body can create a hyperactive system that becomes Mm -hmm. very sensitive. Mm -hmm. And here you are as a kid and it's like you're worried all the time. You know, and it's like, well, your body's just now naturally in that mode. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that was your fault. Those were environmental factors, mm-hmm. right? The right amount of circumstances can put anyone in an unideal situation mm-hmm. such as this. And I think that understanding that is another big step to overcoming stigma and judgment. Because it's like some of these people that you see that might be having issues behaviorally or what it might be. It might not just be a behavioral issue. Something's wrong with them characteristically. Right. But it has roots in something that has been building and manifesting for years. Mm -hmm. And even before they were even conceived, it could be genetic. Because, yeah, Yeah. and then, like, trauma is often, we hear about generational trauma, like, it's a real thing, passing down those unhealthy uh, coping skill passing down um you know unhealthy uh behaviors like mm-hmm. uh the way that we think like it like you said it goes back to that like unlearning and mm-hmm. redoing so that you can become and that's so powerful because i don't think people actually realize that in order to as we say on social media live your best life it's going to require some work mm-hmm. and i think that i often say that my degrees are nothing compared to the work that I had to do. Working on myself has been harder than obtaining both degrees combined. Right. Because that requires me going beneath the surface and pulling back the layers like an onion and actually changing the way that I think and look at things and changing ultimately when you change the way you look at it, you can change your behavior. Um, But that takes time. If you have been... Sometimes people are 40, and it's so interesting. Like, even when I was back at home for my cousin's funeral, and I was just observing certain family members, and and I just kept talking about the benefits of therapy because, I mean, whether they took it or not, I just kept seeing how these so many people, they're like, they're broken, and it's literally they're 50 and 60 years old, and they are walking around whether they're addicted to substances or they're stuck in a depression and maybe undiagnosed or bipolar disorder, and they are literally just existing, um, and that's their norm. And I'm just like, wow, when I look back because of where I am, and I go back and I see certain family members, I'm like, I don't want to look up and be 60 years old and still dealing with the trauma that happened when I was 10. Still and, be in bondage. Right. Yeah. yeah. People are walking around literally in bondage. People are literally walking around in pain for the rest of their lives. And some people, unfortunately, they die broken. That is true. And something that you said about your story, which is quote unquote statistically seems to be true, is that people on average wait about 10 years mm-hmm. before they actually 
get help mm-hmm. and usually it comes down to being an extreme something mm-hmm. like now the suicidal thoughts are too big to handle or now all the pressure is too much and it takes you over when really there was this gradual process over time um mm-hmm. that led to that point or this person was actually had this diagnosis for a while mm-hmm. but just wasn't able to identify what it was there was no language to it but then once you you know get the help go through the therapy now you have language to it so mm-hmm. now you know what to do with it because it's right. not this unknown thing and so speaking to that um a lot of people that listen to this podcast and that i know um have been given a diagnosis or received a diagnosis and you know, there tend to be pros and cons to that. You know, some people are afraid of being misdiagnosed. A lot of people don't want to claim it. A lot of people feel maybe shame behind it, like this Mm -hmm. is my life. But I always say, you know, a diagnosis really is a means of identification, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you have a competent person who can kind of tease it out and really work with Mm -hmm. you. That could be the best thing that happens to you because once you identify what it is, then you can say, oh, okay, this is a part of it. These are the symptoms that Mm -hmm. come with it, and now I can have a means of treatment. Now Mm -hmm. I know how to cope because I know what this thing is. Mm -hmm. And so you went through that. Um, You didn't mention what the official diagnosis or diagnoses were, but um, what would you say to someone who maybe just got a diagnosis and now they just feel hopeless for their life because they feel marked by this? Um, I think what I would say to anyone who's got a diagnosis, so my diagnosis is the straight, the term is major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. Um, that like, it's not a death sentence. It does not define you and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you're flawed. Right. Um, just like. Uh, diabetes or cancer doesn't necessarily mean someone is a bad person like you said it's a way to identify and put a name to what's going on so when I was diagnosed I actually was while I didn't want to accept it there was a part of me that was relieved because now I'm like oh I'm not going crazy there is something going on like internally so now it's a way to identify and put a name to it and now it's like okay now with this diagnosis if I want to get better and I don't like being in this place, then what am I going to do about it? And realizing that treatment is going to look different for every single person. Right. So what may work for me may not work, you know, for someone else. And realizing that your journey is yours alone. You can, um, the biggest thing that has helped me is having a community. Mm-hmm. So I did um, participate in the NAMI peer-to-peer um trainings um and I did like that the, I did that too because it was just yeah it was so it was so refreshing so to, helpful to be around other people that you could identify with um and so anyone who may feel stuck or hopeless um I can what I will say is that it it only gets better if we're willing to put the work in like we we can't go to therapy and expect a therapist to fix us or see a psychiatrist and expect the medication to fix us because in the end the medication yeah it will help uh with treat the symptoms um but with therapy it'll you'll actually start to see the transformation and realizing that it's not an overnight process but if you actually commit to the process over time it will get better and you will have the skills to be able to um 
and even to identify what things look like when they're actually breaking down because sometimes when you get to the point like you said where it's 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 so unmanageable that it's too late to even go back to put those coping skills in place and so now that you have the diagnosis now you can figure out okay now I can actually be proactive versus reactive right that's so good it's so important um and I think you're also an example that there's no face to this right Mm -hmm. like it doesn't matter what you believe what color you are uh Mm -hmm. how many degrees you have even if you are a mental health professional yourself, mm-hmm. there's no discrimination as exactly. to who this can come to, and you never know who mm-hmm. could be struggling, mm-hmm. even if they're high functioning. Right. With this being the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, mm-hmm. how would you say your faith has helped you in, in in getting through all of this? And where, like, where where is the upside? You know, realistically, I think a feeling is, you know, you know, why would God let me go through this? You know, why would he let me suffer? I'm I here I am. I've had faith in him and this and that. But he doesn't seem to be coming through for me Mm. with this. You know, Um, there's that side. Right. And then there's the other side of, you know, he's helped get me through this in spite of everything and used it and turned around to help me become more compassionate Mm -hmm. with others through this human experience, which you, I mean, your life is such a beautiful telling of that and the beauty of the gospel in all of this. Tell us a little bit more about how your faith has processed through all of this. Yeah, my faith has, like everything else, has been a journey because at one point I was really angry and mad at God. Right. Like, why would you let this happen to me? Why... Am I struggling with these thoughts? Like, why did I get this diagnosis? And I was just really angry and I didn't understand and I was confused. But over time, and and because of therapy, I started to change the way that I think about it and said, well, if I broke my leg, most likely I would have to go and get an x-ray and a cast. And so, and while I pray, you know, God will help me to um to heal the broken leg over time but the same thing is i can pray and i can ask god to connect me to the right mental health professional um and realizing that god also works through people right and i think over time my faith has grown in the sense that now it's like when you think about the way that god works is that he uses these experiences to make us better while yes it's painful and it's hurtful and we don't understand it but when I think about how far I've come and where I am now like it's that very experience that changed the trajectory of my life for the better and so when you think about any any story you know in the bible of a person struggling with doubt or even like Elijah, of course, they didn't have the terminology depression back then when you read about the story of Elijah. And I'm like, oh, he went away to go to like away in the bushes and he was like isolating himself. So I'm like, oh, that's a symptom of depression. And you think about it, he said I would be better and something along the lines like I'll be better if I was dead or I want to go with my ancestors. Right. I can't remember the exact it's something like, like that. that. Yeah. And I was looking when I was reading that, I was like, that's Elijah was in a may have been in a depression. 
And I don't think we actually realize that the things that we have gone through, of course, we know that the stories are there and we see how God pulls pull individuals out on the other side. But realizing that my spirituality and my faith in God is also a part of my mental health. But at the same time, when you add the clinical piece to it, now it's like I'm so much more stronger mm-hmm. because it's like this helps me to make sense out of the things that are going on in life, the good and the bad, but also realizing that my faith also provides me with hope. My faith also right. gives me um, a support system and a community who can surround me and pray for me. Um, but then also, like, my faith is also, I think the biggest thing has helped me to realize that, one, of course, you know, God doesn't make any mistakes. And when I had, since I have been growing my faith, I think the biggest thing that I've learned now is that it's a part of God's plan as painful as it is and as much as an inconvenience as it may be. But if I would not have gone through everything and I look at where I am, I may not be where I am today. And so I for a long time struggled with like, well, where does my faith fit into my mental health? But then you think about it, whether someone identifies as a Christian or whatever their religion may be, naturally we all want to be a part of something. And sometimes not for everyone, believe in something bigger than ourselves. And so as a person who of course have lived with a diagnosis, but then also who is very goal oriented and driven, um, My faith is the only thing that sometimes the thing that I have to look forward to and I have to go back to God's word to remind myself of the things that God did back then in the biblical days and and it's still the same and he's, uh, you know, he's never going to change. And so I had to realize that, you know what, this is not a character flaw, this is not my fault, but God used that particular experience to build me up as a person. Right, and to like turn the tide because mm-hmm. we were talking about generational trauma and mm-hmm. things that got passed down and your mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. is you know him putting the yeah the staff in the ground and saying I'm gonna do something different you know generationally starting with her mm-hmm. very possibly you yeah. know and he he uses it had it started there but obviously it's not it's not ending there mm-hmm. and he's using you and those around you and others to turn it around so he he does have this greater plan mm-hmm. on the other side um and i think that's Absolutely. really amazing so we've been talking a lot about what it's like to live with a diagnosis to receive one um now on the flip side for those who have a loved one or friend living with a diagnosis from someone who's been there what are some ways that they can be genuinely supportive and helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing is to listen non-judgmentally or not to be judgmental just because like people sometimes they don't realize the things that they're saying that it will force a person to shut down and then not want to tell them anything. So saying things like, you know, you need to pray harder or saying things like people have it worse than you or like we came from slavery and like those things, you're not validating someone's um, experience. So the biggest thing is just to listen and to validate. 
uh, what that person is going through because it's true for them despite what your perception is of what they're going through. So I think that's one. I would say also to if they're not in therapy um, and they may not have the energy or um, to, to really do much, um, maybe offer to help them find a therapist or help them to find a support group. Um, if they are really like not functioning, maybe you're the one to actually make the phone call and take them to the therapy session. Or maybe they want you to come with them and sit in. Or maybe they want you to come and sit in the waiting room. But really, the biggest thing is asking them, how can I support you during this time? What would help you to feel better? Um, and really listening to them. And then also, I think, realizing that if someone says that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a plan. Right. Sometimes they may, of course, if they have a plan, then you want to either, like, contact the police or a mobile crisis line in your community. Um, but sometimes people, if when they say they're suicidal, um, it may come off as uh, alarm someone and may make someone else feel uncomfortable. But sometimes, for me, there have been times when I felt suicidal when I actually just wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk through those suicidal thoughts. And I didn't actually, I wasn't going to do anything. Right. I just, so I think also being comfortable and learning that the more you have the conversation about um, that, uh, that person's mental health diagnosis and if they're struggling with suicide ideation, that you'll begin, it'll start to be a little bit more comfortable. And so I would also say that their NAMI has the family sub, uh, support group. And so if you are supporting a loved one, whether it's a family member or a friend, through um, a crisis, actually knowing what to do and even uh, taking something like the mental health first aid mm -hmm. so you know how to respond when someone is in a crisis, um, if they're experiencing psychosis, um, the things to say, the things not to say, what to do and what not to do. Um, and so you will have to take the liberty to actually educate yourself on on what they're going through and how it shows up for them because, um, you know, like bipolar disorder can show up differently from right. one person to the next. Just things like that and realizing that once you begin to just listen to them and validate them, but then also realizing that you don't, sometimes you don't have to figure it out. Sometimes people just want someone physically there. Um, when someone wants to talk to you, sometimes they don't want advice. They don't want to hear anything you have to say. They just want to get it off their chest. So I think the biggest thing is really asking questions so you can properly support that individual. And if that person is a threat to themselves or someone, then you definitely want to contact, um, you know, authorities. That's really good. Um, and I will list in the show notes links to NAMI mm -hmm. um, as well as the Mental Health First Aid site because I've done the trainings for both of those as well. And mm -hmm. I think they're very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so now you've got some exciting stuff going on, girl. I do. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now and yeah, that little special something you got going on <laughs> happening. Yeah. So I recently published a book. Woo! Yes. So that's the biggest, that's a huge milestone for me because that was something I always wanted to do. Um, and so the title of my book is Saved and Depressed. Saved and Depressed on Amazon. Yes. Um, and the subtitle is A Suicide Survivor's Journey of Mental Health Healing and Faith. 
and it's really a memoir on my life and it um, addresses generational trauma it talks about um, uh, suicide it talks about uh, social media and comparison Mm -hmm. it literally breaks down how mental health there's everything in your life there's an intersection you know for mental health down to the relationships that you have or the relationships that you don't have um you know how we sometimes use things in our lives to fill voids and we're wondering why when you you say i'm gonna move i move you move to atlanta and you're like oh my gosh you know things didn't change and you move to new york and you're like well why like but then the end is like realizing that you're the issues and things they're still living within you so i really just talk about in my um in the book about like my faith and i talk about the ways that the church can encourage mental health treatment it's not like a bash the church book that's not really what it is but it does bring light to the things that were said um, because of just the lack of education on it um and so the biggest thing that i want people to get from the book is realizing that they can pray and they can see a therapist and that seeking mental health treatment is not a character flaw and it does not mean that you lack faith in God. Um, and it offers um, a lot of resources so that people can actually, it's not, the book is not just good for someone who may be able to identify, but it's good for someone who may be like a caregiver of someone. So yeah, that's about the book. That is amazing. Would you have ever thought back when you were in Mm-mm. the hospital Mm-mm. going through that, that you would be on a podcast talking about the book that you wrote. No. Yeah, not even just talking like what? about it. I, when I first started writing, and I was writing articles on The Mighty. I was using a fake name. I love The Mighty. but Yeah, they're awesome. What was your name? It was um, Joy Green. Um, Joy oh. was because I was in a depression and I didn't have it. And Green is the mental health ribbon, so... There we had, and so I would use that name. I had an email for her, and it was like because, well, you know, I didn't want. I felt like people would judge me, and I was still dealing with the shame and the totally. embarrassment. Totally. Um, but then eventually, I'm like, it's too much to wear this mask. I just, I'm going to own it. And the moment that I owned it, I became so free. It was liberating, and now I could just completely be myself. And I think that through that experience, it's given other people permission to do the same that is amazing well thank you so much not Yay. only am i so happy that we got to do this in I person know, right you guys should see my face right now <laughs> i'm just like grinning because this made my whole day um Yay. but thank you for sharing such a powerful story and man just being the evidence of that God can turn it around, that it can mm-hmm. be turned around, that there is another side. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that there won't be setbacks. Right. That doesn't mean that she's like never going to arrive. She's arrived. Right. We've no, arrived. I've always said I'm constantly, I'm always arriving. And I think I'm going to yeah. be arriving until the day that I die because Boom. I'm always um, evolving. Boom. So <laughs> when I wrote my anxiety detox, someone I think emailed me and was like, so when did you overcome anxiety? I was like, excuse me. <laughs> I was like, I'm. I have to. I have to continuously put mm-hmm. coping skills in place. It's a lifelong journey. Right. I could. Any amount of life circumstances could happen to put us back mm-hmm. at square one. But now we have the tools, so hopefully mm-hmm. we will move through it differently. But 
but yeah. that's life. So right. no, I hope that this episode has been an encouragement to everyone. I know that I'm just, I'm just reveling in all of this amazingness that God is doing through you. And um, thanks for taking the time to share your story. 